welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. In this podcast, we discuss mystical works of literature and how they relate to recovery. We hope you enjoy today's podcast episode. Hey guys, buddy C, welcome to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. Today, we have Sensei and Amy and Marla. Happy to be here. Thank you, sir. And Dennis and Craig. Craig did our questions, so he's going to be looking for some uh, A-pluses from you, Sensei. Yeah, I've got the questions there, and uh, I'm, I'm just checking something where he says straw dogs in Dyer's translation, and that term is not used in the other one. Straw dogs comes up in a couple of the commentaries, and it's basically uh, it's, it's basically something that's discarded after use. So it's kind of like a pinata. Yeah. Okay. So okay. Once, once it's used, there's, there's there's no further need for it. And it's basically cast off. So in China, uh, it meant it meant something different than we 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 use the expression straw man, which I get confused with. But so right. straw dog, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah. So so basically, the, the human body once once it served its purpose, that's it. it, it it doesn't serve any other purpose than um, gotcha. a, a vessel for. But in, in the other one, Jonathan Starr translation, he says uh, a man may choose one over the another instead of saying the 10,000 things a straw dog, that heaven and use are all the same. High, low, all are given light, all get a place to rest. That's very different. And say in the notes for Jonathan Starr, he talks about straw dogs as being kept in a box wrapped up in an embroidered yeah. cloth. Okay. And the auger fasts before using it, but when it once has been offered up, passers by trample over its body and fuel gatherers pick them up for burning. Okay. And the first question, if everything is seen by heaven and earth as a straw dog and sage, the sage is unsentimental and treats everything as a straw dog. How is this asking everything to treat its contemporaries? I think by that you mean how is this how is this asking everyone to to treat their contemporaries? Is that what you mean? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. 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 Okay. So I I I I think there would be an exception to the rule here. If you're getting, if what you're getting at is you would be careless or cavalier or uncaring in your treatment of other people, people I don't think would fit the category of straw dog. And when he says everything is uh, regarded as a straw dog or something which is, it has its life cycle, it has its use, it has its place. But then once it's over, it's over and it's, it becomes trash or it becomes, you know, like last year's garden becomes this year's compost for next year's garden, something like that. So I would, I would take this to not include human beings and um, contemporaries. I don't, I don't see anywhere that he's mentioning human relationships with each other. Other than in um, the star translation, the last line is interesting. He says, especially in the light of the political scene we're witnessing, he says, man was not made to blow out air. <laughs> we, talk, we talk about blowhards, right? 
I don't think that's what he meant. It, yeah. It's made to sit quietly and find the truth within. So that's the only mention I see. Well, then he also says he gives and gives without condition, offering his treasure to everyone. So I think he's talking about the physical world, and then there's the human world. And so certainly this attitude of just using people up and throwing them, you know, throwing them away when you're done with them is is considered, I think, in all philosophies, Taoism and Zen, as well as ordinary, um, what you might call our founding papers, you know, how we're supposed to treat each other, um, government by for of the people and so forth. Um, it's it's a criticism to treat a human another person as a as a, quote straw dog, or even to treat a live dog as a straw dog, or you know. So I think I don't I don't pick that up from this myself, but how that he's saying anything about like that. So we're not being asked to treat our contemporaries by as straw dogs as things to be discarded that is the essence kind of of uh, some of the precepts like do not misuse sexuality mm -hmm. uh, where you objectify another person that kind of thing that's in one of the precepts in, in zen so does does that make sense the, i think the, the the sentimentality is um a different point uh not getting attached to possessions, obviously, is one of these, one of the implications of the straw dog. Everything uh, changes. Everything has its own pattern of uh, existence and shelf life and decay and so on. So um, we don't become sentimentally attached to things. Uh, that becomes more difficult when you see these monks in the history of the stories are to be believed who didn't who were homeless they didn't have a home and that was not uh, that was not a shame that was not a pejorative that was more like a an attitude and a decision homeless koto sawaki a very famous teacher in zen whose disciple uchiyama roshi was okamura roshi's teacher in Okamura, she's one of my teachers. He's actually younger than I am, but he did some of my formal Japanese ceremonies. Kodo Sovaki was known as homeless Kodo because he never settled down in a monastery or temple. He was always on the on the move. And many of the uh, monks, and even, even today, are like that. They're, they're, what do you call it, not indigent, but transient. You know, they're, they're always on the move. They don't have a home. And my grass, little, my little grass hut. You know, if they had a hut or something that was uh, that was that was something to have. You know? But they they didn't have a big luxurious home. If you lived in a monastery, which are big and to some degree luxurious, you don't own it. It's not yours. So I think the unsentimental part is is like that. It's like the material world, materialism, consumerism. How much is enough? Do you really have to have a, a new car, a better car than the one you have, and, and so forth? Monks traditionally had owned seven things. They had a straw hat, and this is Japan again, straw hat, sandals, you know, 
Uh, so they had basically seven possession, including the robes and stuff, the begging bowl. So I think that's what this is getting at a little bit. Uh, not anti-materialism as such, but just uh, moderation, you know. Wait, there's, you there's nothing I need to own or want to own or need to hoard. You know, I'm not, I'm not going to hoard wealth. Do not spare the Dharma assets kind of thing. Oh, we forgot to read. We didn't read the verse before we started. You hit the ground running, Sensei, and uh, I want to slow you down for a second and let me read the verse. <laughs> uh, this is the fifth verse from uh, uh, Wayne Dyer, Change Your Thoughts, Change Your Life. Heaven and earth are impartial. They see the 10,000 things as straw dogs. That's what you were talking about. The sage is not sentimental. He treats all his people as straw dogs. The sage is like heaven and the earth. To him, none are especially dear, nor is there anyone he disfavors. He gives and gives without condition, offering his treasures to everyone. Between heaven and earth is a space like a bellows, empty and inexhaustible. The more it is used, the more it produces. Hold on to the center. Man, man was made to sit quietly and find the truth within. So there is a good compare. He is using straw dogs in relation to human beings when he's describing the sage, seeing all, um, he treats all his people as straw dogs. So I think that's where your question came from. But I think what that's getting at is something like, in the, uh, Having a community, a, a Zen Sangha or community, you get attached to the people in it. And a lot of times people come to join that group for the, for the, quote, the wrong reasons. They're, they're there for the socialization, the fellowship, and you know churches are like this as well. And it gets sticky. It gets to be uh, another sort of problematic situation. Some people are not there for the right reasons. And um, I think uh, a lot of what I see coming out of what I call West Coast Zen, the Suzuki lineage, is an extremely high emphasis on community and sangha and living in that situation and all the right and wrong things to do in it. I think it's way too heavy on sangha. You also got Buddha and Dharma as the other two legs of the three-legged stool. And from our perspective in Soto Zen, as I understand it, Buddha is critical. That's time on the cushion. That's personal practice. That's all of those things. Dharma is studying the ancestors, trying to understand these teachers of Taoism and Buddhism, what they're pointing at, trying to get at what, what are they getting at? What, what am I missing? Sangha community is the third leg of the stool, and it's important that if you have one of these uh way over exaggerated, it kind of crushes the other two. So here, I think what he's saying about a sage is, um, he's saying everything is seen by heaven and earth as a straw dog. And I think what he means that a Tao is heaven and earth, right? It's the way everything, it's the universal. You have the universal, the natural, the um, social and personal. I don't know if I sent you that chart. Buddy, do you remember if I sent you that chart? You have. The nesting spheres? Yes. So 
when they talk about Taoism, they kind of started on a universal level and they talk about this uh, seen by heaven and earth. So that's the universal and the natural worlds, right? Earth represents the natural world, um, uh, heaven and all the other, the universe, you know, represents the universal sphere. Uh, if you just look at how this all happens and how it works, this is this is uh, Buddha's Four Noble Truths. There's the existence of suffering or change. Gal galaxies colliding is, is dukkha. It's not a personal thing. It's more like a Taoist principle that everything is changing. Mm -hmm. And so everything, this is not a respecter of persons. It, 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 we're born into a world that, that kills us. The, the very thing that brings us into existence as a living being is what is, what is aging and killing us as we live. It's the same thing, in other words. We are, so um, heaven and earth sees everything as a straw dog, including you, <laughs> right? Including your life. You're going to be chewed up and spat out, just like everything else. Uh, then he goes on to say, and I think you, you, could, you could use the expression, just as everything is seen by heaven and earth as a straw dog, the sage sees it that way and also sees other human beings that way. So he's not sentimental, does not, he or she does not attach to this person as being special and different, or I need, I need something from this person. Most sages were uh, uh, qualified as a sage in this time. You certainly were not a householder. You know, most were not. They were, they were, they would often be hermits or living alone in a cave or in a grass hut somewhere. So for them, every human being that they come into contact with is in a sense equal with every other human being. So in that sense, they're like straw dogs. I don't value one over the other. I think that's the implication. That's the quality of being a straw dog that he's getting at for, for people. Yeah. Sensei, would, they, would that also apply to acceptance, like the day being as it is, so that you didn't put uh, expectations on like like attachments really to yeah, every day every day is a happy day every day is a good day is an old zen saying and people ask me what would i add to that because matsuoka would say that and i'd say regardless regardless yeah. now that's you know easy to say <laughs> but very hard to live up to but i think it's what it means you know every day is essentially a straw dog it's it's temporary it's going to be another day and they're, they're similar but no two days are exactly alike and I, you know, we, we often say this is a good day or that was a bad day. But according to the universe and nature, it's not. Right. And in Zen, we say there's no such thing as a day. You know, it's just, it's just a convention. There's just a moment, right? Well, we found that out when we got off the earth and into space. We could see that what we call yeah. a day is just the earth rotating. Yeah. And it's continuous. <laughs> Huh. So there's just the moment. There's not a day. It's what since they call the eternal moment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But we find markers. We find markers just like we celebrate New Year's. And there's some rationale to that. We've, we're, we're sort of at the same point in the orbit that we were when the year started. So it's starting over. But we're completely in a different part of the universe by then. Mm -hmm. 
I mean, every the whole solar system, everything, you know, it's all moved. So, hmm. but as human beings, we have we want these markers to to bring order out of chaos. We want to be able to make sense of things. So a day makes sense, a week makes sense, a weekend, none of these things exist. It's all control. Yeah, at the end of Xin uh, Xingming, which was a Chinese poem from uh, around 600, it says, he kind of throws up his hand and says words, exclamation point. He's this really long poem and he's trying to get these points across his words. The way is beyond language. Talking about the Tao, the Tao, the way is beyond language for in it, there is no yesterday, no tomorrow, no today. Now, if you were going to choose three words that would illustrate how something is beyond words, you could do a lot worse than choosing yesterday, today, or tomorrow, and, and today, because those are such critical words for us, describing a, a major part of our reality, right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right. So, very close comparison. Are we good enough on that one? You good, Craig? Craig? Right. Yes, thank you very much. Yes. Okay. Anything yeah. more on that? If you want to follow up later, we can talk in person. Okay. How does Zen describe man's physical existence? The Taoist description is that the physical form is of no consequence after death. The straw dog, which is discarded after youth, and alludes to us being vessels for a spiritual being. Zen would be very different from that. That's very much like uh, Christian our, our concept of a soul or, or a Hindu, Hindu concept of a soul as a self-existent entity occupying the body for the time being. And uh, that's where reincarnation comes from. That self-existent soul survives death and takes on another body much as we would change clothes. Uh, Buddha said, I find no evidence of this. <laughs> so you know, he, was, he was acting on his own re reconnaissance he, he wasn't uh recognizance i guess he, he wasn't referring to doctrine or, or authority handed down to him he's saying in my meditation i found that what we call this this body this being is like a chariot and when you take the chariot apart and you lay all the parts out there on the ground where is the chariot the chariot only exists in the assembly so in Buddhism and Hindu, I'm sure, and probably Taoism, the skandhas, form, feeling, thought, impulse, consciousness, and the senses, eye, ear, nose, tongue, body, mind, and so forth, all represent the assembly. And we are like uh, the chariot. And Buddha says, when you take that all apart, there's no there there in the middle. It's like the middle of an onion when you take it all apart. So... He denied Atman, which was their term for the soul. And so he would also contradict Taoism, saying that uh, there is a spiritual being that is separate from the physical. Buddhism does not allow for any separation of physical and spiritual. It's very much like matter and energy. You, you can say there are forms of energy that are radiant, and then there are forms of energy that are impounded. The forms of energy that are impounded are what we call matter, atoms, particles, molecules, et cetera, et cetera. So 
uh, not allowing the separation of spiritual and material or the the material is just the immaterial. The immaterial is just the material, according to Buddhism. Very much like form and emptiness, very much like matter and energy. So Buddhism would not accept this. When you die, your whole world dies. There isn't any remainder. There is what is called in, in, in uh, rebirth, picks up some of reincarnations principles. I think it was because Buddha had to use the um, cultural memes and received wisdom of the time in order to talk about his experience and how it differed. So there is what they call a karmic remainder, a kind of influence that carries over into the next life or the next birth. But the person that is born is not the same as the person that died. Not the same person. But a claim to see his past life by the tens, by the hundreds, by the thousands, by the millions, and so forth. But they were not him. So it's kind of a fuzzy logic area. It's not as simple and black and white and linear as reincarnation. The karmic bundle is more like DNA, you could say, like a tree, a, tr a parent tree drops a seed, blows away in the wind or whatever. Uh, it lands under auspicious causes and conditions, plenty of sunshine, rainwater, nutritious soil. It will pretty dependably grow into a tree very much like the parent tree unless a bird eats it or some, some negative cause or condition interferes. So it's carrying the DNA of the parent tree, but it's not the same tree. It's a different tree from the parent tree. And so that's a little bit more the way Buddhism looks at rebirth. There is a, and this is re, what we're experiencing now is rebirth, basically, on, based on, on this Buddhist principle. But they don't, they don't put these uh, arguments forward as an argument. It's more like here's a theory or hypothesis, right? And you can examine in your own life and see if it makes any sense to you. That got you correct that on that one? Good enough on that? Now, at the same time, Buddhism, I don't think, he denies this. That, that, as I said, it doesn't separate the physical and the spiritual, the common and the sacred and so forth. These are all seen as complementary dyads that you know, essentially define each other, just like dark and light and uh, hot and cold and so forth. You can't have the one without the other. Uh, so Buddhism does not deny spirituality. It just says that it's completely integrated in physicality. The second stanza, number three, tells us that the sage is like heaven and earth. To him, none are especially dear. How do we distinguish between those who we want personal relationships with, for example, friendships or marital relationships? It's often said that we cannot choose our families. Regarding this verse, how do we choose our friends? So we have affinity, what in Zen is called affinity. You, you may have an affinity, an affinity for your teacher, for instance, in, in Zen. And of course, in Taoism or anywhere else, uh, music or in, any other thing you can name. If you don't have enough affinity with your teacher, it's going to be a very difficult relationship. You're not going to get much out of it. And I often liken us in Zen, at least, to coaches. It's like if the athlete is willing to do the work, coaching can help. 
But if the athlete is not willing to do the work, no amount of coaching is going to help. So I have you ever read Schopenhauer? You might want to read Schopenhauer toward the end of his uh, book. It's called The World as Idea, The World as Something, The World as Idea, The World as Will, and The World as Idea. Uh, he was like uh, 17th century, I think, or somewhere around there, about the time that America was founded. He made some startling statements saying there's no such thing as the white race. <laughs> <laughs> in those days but he, he pointed out that he said you may think that uh, you are attracted to your spouse or to this uh, other person with whom you want to have a child but he said that's that's not your desire that's the desire of the species and he also goes into this long thing of why opposites attract because the species is interested in having a hybrid child, a child that's going to have a better chance of surviving, genetically speaking. And so the recessive genes don't come out as you as they saw in the royal families in Europe and so forth, where they intermarried. And that's where all of the genetics first started, all that kind of analysis. So one thing we understand that we agree we would agree with i think in zen uh that you cannot get free of this um karmic body that you're you're born into in our repentance verse in zen it says uh all my past and harmful karma um from beginningless greed, hate, and delusion, which is so-called three poison, born of this body, mouth, and mind, I now fully avow. In other words, I fess up, I own up to. Born, uh, born of this body, mouth, and mind is similar to what Schopenhauer is saying. He's considered kind of a Zen philosopher, even though he probably had no exposure to Zen. Uh, it comes with the territory. Most of our desires, cravings, uh, if you're thirsty, your body needs water. If you're hungry, your body needs food. Right? And Buddha, Buddha experimented with uh, asceticism, starving himself, and you know, working against the natural cravings and tendencies that come with this body. But born of this body, mouth, and mind means we're not exactly responsible for it in a sense of 100%. We're responsible for what we do about it and the actions we take. And, you know, we, we suffer the consequences of those or, or benefit from the consequences of those. But uh, Zen recognizes that the um, attractions and the repulsions the, we have in life are kind of beyond our control. They're, they're built in. And uh, you may be attracted to somebody and you can't find a single logical reason for it. <laughs> <laughs> we make a lot of bad choices because of that. So um, <clears throat> I don't think we actually distinguish between those <laughs> that we want and those that we don't want. I think we sort of back into them and we luck out sometimes. We, we don't other times. Uh, and of course, <laughs> we can't choose our families. Now, there's a little bit of a caveat there in Buddhism, at least, 
it has this fluffy idea as part of the fuzzy logic of, of rebirth that you are drawn to your mother's womb, so to speak, and this is all in quotes, you know, air quotes around each of these words, because there is no you there, by affinity. That is, you have an affinity for your parents. There's some sort of karmic affinity. Uh, maybe it's like a magnetic field or something. You could think of it as, you know, the your your life does not begin with your birth. The sperm and egg that came together in the mother's womb were already alive, right? So that's not where life begins. And before them, your parents were alive, and that's where that's where the sperm and egg came from. And so it's an endless regress. If you try to trace it back to its first cause or origin, Catholicism plays with that. You know, and Christianity and science has the Big Bang and so forth. But Zen just sort of says it's beginningless and endless. <laughs> and we're right, we're at, we're right in the middle of that of that uh, continuum. So birth is seen as a blip on the continuum. Death is seen as a blip on the continuum. But it's the continuum of life in the larger sense. So those we're attracted to are part of that weird formulation. And uh, I think we choose friends. Marital relationships used to be arranged, and they were for financial reasons. They were for all kinds of practical reasons, which may have been smarter, by the way, than, <laughs> than basing them on romance, right? Um, and that's part of the sentimentality thing, uh, that, that you become less sentimental uh, through your practice, not in the sense of uncaring, but less deluded by your own feelings, you could say, maybe. Uh, I think we choose our friends. I, I tend to think I don't have any friends. There's a word in um, Sanskrit, Kalyanamitra, uh, and in Japanese, it's Chishiki, and it means good friend. So those, the idea is that those that we meet through the Sangha who are interested in their own understanding of Dharma and they're interested in your understanding of Dharma are, quote, a good friend. They're not interested in you for sexual reasons, for financial reasons, for uh, getting, getting over on you, for get you to do something for them reasons. They're not interested in going out and hanging out and drinking beer and having a good time, although we do. But that's not the that's not the fundamental basis of the relationship in a sangha. The basic basis of the relationship, any relationship in a sangha, is the mutual pursuit of this understanding of dharma. And that's why you had these great stories about dharma brothers and dharma nuns, and you know, had these exchanges. They're all written down. So I think we gravitate to our friends. If I could use that expression, it's more like a uh, an affinity, an attraction, or uh, like-minded, you know. Uh, when I say I don't have friends, I think, I don't know what it means in a sense to be a friend, other than the one I just defined, which is the traditional definition in Buddhism. If we say, well, a friend is somebody who will do anything for you, right, or I will do anything for them. 
I grew up with a lot of uh, people that I still have some contact with through high school. I went to one high school reunion. <laughs> I, I could only get myself to go to one, and that was enough. So you, you, I don't know what you consider friends. I would ask you the question. You know, uh, what is a friend? So I, I'm not sure that it's a useful definition, in my, at least in my my context. My relationships are friendly. <laughs> and I think I have other people's best interests at heart, but I don't classify people as to my friends and not my friends. So, Craig, what's your thought on that? Yeah, that um, I, I think that that displays a line between becoming emotionally attached to somebody and having a common purpose, mm-hmm. um, almost almost being of service to each other, having a common interest. Yeah. And once a common interest is done, then we can part ways. We don't always have to be living in each other's pockets and texting each other every night. Just, yeah, just to shoot yeah. breeze. You know, it's it's just we've done the business. We've, we've we've had the fellowship. We've had the discussions. That's it. We can now go yeah. on to the next yeah. interactions without having that emotional um, attachment yeah. to yeah. tell the people. Now, uh, I do about thirty one-on-one conferences a week, which are forty-five minutes, half an hour, forty-five minutes or so. And all of those relationships are very interesting. I mean, we have a mind meld or something you know, where, where we, we can talk with each other and we're like-minded and we're trying to have the same interests. And, and it's all about Buddha Dharma and it's about life and how Zen relates to life, et cetera. It's, you know, Dokusan, we call it Dokusan, interview kind of dialogue. I, I think that's close to, uh, but they don't become codependent. You know, that that's a sort of a mutual. And, and as they taper off, they start off often frequently, like once a week, you know, and then they taper off to my buddy. Buddy and I have one going. Um, they may become once a month. And it's not like my feelings are hurt. <laughs> or, or that their feelings are hurt. You know. Hey, since uh, you treat them as straw dogs, right? Yeah, I'd cast them aside. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's not either good or bad. It just is, you know. We don't throw them under the bus. Right, exactly. But you don't put undue attachment on them either, though. No, uh, it works as long as it works. And if there was a there was a guy, one of the guys who started transactional analysis said, I don't come into this life. I didn't come into this life to live up to your expectations. And you didn't come into this life to live up to mine. But if we meet each other in the middle or something like that, he said, it's wonderful, you know. Um, So we think of relationships in Zen. When I ask people what they think would be this primary characteristic of any relationship, the, the number one salient thing. You could say about a relationship, people say, well, trusting each other, uh, being respectful, being in love, these kind of things. I think it's a little more brutal than that in Zen. It's like impermanence. You know, the good news is the bad ones are impermanent. The bad news is the good ones are impermanent. But if if you don't see a relationship in the light of impermanence, you're kind of living in a fantasy. Now, there's a theory around rebirth that, that we didn't start this relationship in this lifetime. We're rejoining this relationship from prior lifetimes, right? 
So Buddha would use this, this kind of explanation when people would say, why did the prince marry this homely woman? He could have married anybody. And Buddha would say, well, they were lovers in the past lifetime, and they're continuing their relationship in this lifetime. <laughs> so karma or rebirth can be used to explain the unexplainable. And we've all got things we can't explain. We could, we could treat the unexplainable as straw dogs too, right? That's right. You don't have to drag it around with you. That's it. Yeah. There's a famous story. All these stories are similar where the monk and the senior monk are walking along and they come to a river and you've heard this story. I'm sure the woman is waiting by the river and she, she needs to cross the river. So the senior monk says, well, climb up on my back. I'll carry you across. And he does. And he puts her down on the other side and they go on. So they're going on for a long time with no conversation. And you can see the junior monk is sort of mulling this over. And he said, back there, he said, you picked up that woman and carried it across the stream. He said, yes, that's right, I did. He said, we're not supposed to touch women. We're not supposed to have anything to do with them. <laughs> he said, you must be awfully tired. You're still carrying her. I put her down back there. <laughs> I put her down back there by the river. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we can we can carry a lot of baggage, and part of part of our practice is putting the baggage down at the door. You know, you, you know, you're you're hitting on something there, Sensei, that might be good to talk from a, a Zen Buddhist approach. A big part of recovery is dealing with resentments and character defect, all the things that we carry around from our past that we don't surrender self, and let go. Self self judgment. Yes. Yes. How how was that approached in uh, in Zen? Well, I think with humility, you come you come up with you know I've come up with some silly sayings, which is part of my nature. Is that what would a guy like me do in a case like this? Mm -hmm. Well, I'd probably screw it up because I'm always screwing everything up. But at least I always know what I'm doing. <laughs> so. It fall down seven times, get up eight is one of Dogen's expressions. Master Dogen founded this, founded our form of Zen, 13th century Japan. So fall down seven times, get up eight. Why didn't they say get up seven? It's kind of like a colon. I, I don't know. But, uh, you have to make mistakes. You have to forgive yourself or allow yourself to make mistakes. This is something we're trained in in design. It's a, it's, it's a starting principle. You're not going to do good design if, if you don't make mistakes trying. And the, the only thing is to recover and, and recalculate and correct. So in Zen, I think it's more like that. We, What do I expect from a guy like me? Right? I mean, I'm not perfect. I don't expect to be perfect. I don't put myself on that kind of pedestal. And if you can be patient with yourself that way, it's a whole lot easier to be patient with everybody else. Hmm. I mean, I'm really impatient with politics right <laughs> But the, the problem, you know, anger comes up and we think, oh, I'm not supposed to be angry. I'm supposed to be calm. Uh, but anger is not always ego. Anger is a, a, a justifiable reaction to the situation we're in that we don't control. Buddha called it a burning house. We, we can't control the fire. And it's closing in on us. And we don't like that. So it's natural to be angry. But what we aim it at, what we blame it on is the problem. If you were angry when you were five years old about certain things, you were angry as a teenager about different things. 
and so forth as you go through your life, you see the anger is a constant. But the, the things you blame it on keep changing. So they can't be the cause. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think it's like that. So we, we don't hold ourselves to such a high uh, expectation. You know. Okay, thank you. Thank you. What was Something your name? Like yeah, I think that's, did we get the third question? We're on four now? We're on the fourth one. How do we maximize? the time we, by the way does anybody else have any comment or question we have yeah on please anyone nope okay so for how do we maximize the time we spend in the space between heaven and earth the best description i can give as an example of this space are the pauses between inhaling and exhaling the more time i spend there the more present i am of spiritual existence as opposed to the physical existence my best experience of this was the meditation we took part in on our previous meeting. Yeah, the Hindus call that a turning point, the beneficence. I may have mentioned that in the instruction. <clears throat> when you inhale, uh, we don't teach pranayama, which is yogic breath control, uh, how to proportion your breath. So you inhale for such a count, you hold for such a count, you exhale for such a count, and you hold out for such a count. Our counting, when we do counting, is very simple. You just count one for the in-breath, two for the out-breath, over and over like that. Or count up to four, one for each cycle. Some simple way of counting the breath that does nothing more than help you focus your attention on the breath. If you don't do the counting, your mind tends to wander to other thoughts. The counting helps just kind of keep it focused on the breath. It's not magical. Being able to count your breath for long periods of time is not a goal. Or objective it's not enlightenment it's just a, it's a skillful means a technique it's a little bit like paying attention to tempo if you're a musician if you're out of tempo the other musicians have a hard time playing with you so you're following your breath in that sense and we say follow your breath don't try to control your breath follow it and simply similarly look for the natural posture the natural breath follow the body follow the breath it'll teach you this meditation I'm sure we went through all that last time. So uh, again, the spiritual and physical are intertwined, intricately interrelated. They cannot be separated. It's like trying to separate form and emptiness or trying to separate hot and cold. They define each other. And so here, um, but the space, the best example of the pauses between inhaling and exhaling, I think is an excellent way to think of it. At that moment, uh, the mind works tends to stop or take the same kind of pause. And if you can, if you want to intentionally uh, manipulate your breath to this degree, some teachers recommend counting only the out breath and emphasizing the exhalation as long and slow and 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 quiet, but gradually thicker, thicker stream of air until the lungs are empty. So that's a very long push. The inhale is quicker. And then you, you can hold your breath as you did when you were a kid, maybe, uh, either because you were mad or uh, your experiment. And like taking a toke from marijuana, right? It pushes the oxygen into your lungs harder, possibly. But then the long exhalation, when the lungs are empty, 
each of those turns, the upturn and the downturn are called the beneficence because just in that moment, in that pause, that turning point, everything sort of comes to a pause. And then it starts again when the breath starts again. So if you approach your breath that way following it, when you're doing your meditation, you, you do begin to experience that present moment much more profoundly when the breath is not moving. <laughs> it's just being more still. I mean, we, we, we say it's not, we're not entering into quiet. We say silence is thunder, you know. The silence in Zen is not the absence of sound. The silence is in the sound. The sound is in the silence. But we are entering into stillness, deeper and deeper stillness. And as you sit longer, sit long enough, still enough, you begin to notice deeper levels of motion. Like you can feel your heartbeat. You can feel your blood circulating. You can feel pulses going through your knees. You can see pulses in your eyes. So you begin to experience, ironically, the stiller you sit, the more motion you begin to feel. But the motion is on a more granular level, like cellular. And as you do that, as you sink more and more into that stillness, you can you can you can find where you're fidgeting, like you're 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 wiggling your toe, you know, or something unconsciously. And you say, "Oh, I'm doing that. Let's just let that stop." And that stops. So you become more and more still. Buddha had a metaphor of. Uh, silty water in a, in a jar, glass jar. And uh, he said, if you keep picking up off the shelf and shaking it, it stays murky and you can't see through it. But if you let it sit still on the self, all, shelf, all the silt will settle to the bottom. Then the water becomes clear and you can see through it. So this is a metaphor for the mind. If you keep shaking it up, it stays murky. But if you let it sit still, all everything settles to the bottom. So yeah, I think uh, we maximize the time we spend in the space between heaven and earth. That's the way we do it. But that that doesn't require, uh, that doesn't mean that it, oh, it's only happening when you're sitting in meditation. That's a big confusion. It goes with you off the cushion. So when you're walking, uh, it's maybe a little less so, but we do walking meditation where from the Stomach up, it's all the basically the same as when sitting, very still, erect posture. The legs are moving, but we move very slowly. You're driving in the car in the expressway. If you're sitting at your desk at the office, motor muscle memory can take over where suddenly you start sitting up straighter and breathing deeper. So it's it, we don't make the division and say it's only when we're sitting in meditation that we're practicing meditation. It has nothing to do with sitting, actually. It's just that the body, the physical body, is more balanced and alert in the, in the cross-legged sitting posture than in any other posture, standing or walking or lying down, or the other three cardinal postures. So, yeah, that's where I think that's how we maximize it. Uh, motor muscle memory starts to take over uh, when we've done enough meditation, sat still enough for long enough. So we start settling into stillness no matter where we are what we're doing it's much more much more calm less anxiety more clarity less confusion good enough on that one i got you craig okay anybody else so we can talk all night about meditation but 
most important things. Yeah, I would yeah, just like yeah. to say that when, when you mentioned about wiggling the toes, the first thing I started to do was wiggle my toes. Yeah. And then I stopped. And then I started wiggling my ears. It's, it's just funny how we become become conscious of it the more that we the more that we're thinking about it. Well, you can actually work through your whole body that way when you're in meditation, like the it's called the relaxation response. You know, if you grip, you squeeze your hands in a fist and then let go, and squeeze them again and let go. Then tighten your tighten these arm muscles and your forearms. And then tighten your biceps and let go. Tighten your shoulders, and let go. You can work your way through your whole body that way, tightening and letting go, tightening and letting go. And that'll help your legs to relax. So if you're sitting cross-legged, that can be pretty strenuous for some people. And uh, I, so I think the relaxation response is what's happening, but in your whole being. You're kind of tightening everything up. And then you're letting it go. So the posture should be more like a stretch, like a comfortable stretching action. And the, the breath should be more like a sigh, like a sigh of relief. It's not a labor, belabored kind of practice, but it's not relaxing and slumping either. Very rigorous. I often liken it to a cobra rising off the floor, going back on the chin, arching the small of the back. Very rigorous. And, and, but your body will teach you all that if you just pay attention. In our time consuming days of busyness, how do we maintain our hold on the center? And I talked about that a little bit, but motor muscle memory, you, if you try to apply Zen to your life or meditation to your life, you'll probably fail. You'll, you'll screw it up, you know. But if you just apply yourself to meditation, it will apply itself to your life. I think it has to happen on a subliminal, unconscious, unintentional level. I don't, we can try, you can try to do it intentionally, but it's probably going to be difficult. You have to grow into it, right, Sensei? Like yeah, it's a natural so. thing? And, yeah, and it doesn't matter how old you are to, to, to start That's that growth process. And part of it is like remembering what it was like when you were a kid. Hmm. You were three or four years old and, and your mind was fully conscious, but you didn't have all these ideas and baggage you were carrying. So it's a little bit like a regression. Hmm. So it's it's not like you you have to do start over again. Mm -hmm. You know, you're already there, really. You've already been there and you've forgotten. So mm -hmm. part of mindfulness is remembering. Mm -hmm. So. Uh, once we start practicing meditation, we benefit from the accumulation over time. And that's why there was a guy, Huynang, Sixth Patriarch in China, who was fully uh, awakened, enlightened, without ever having sat in meditation at all hmm. up to that point. But he was said to be ripe and ready, like a pear ready to fall off the branch, you know. Um, so you may be ripe and ready, and it may not take you very long. Uh, but as I said, most of it is getting rid of our baggage, and that's what allows us to kind of regress to a more childlike frame of mind mm -hmm. and a more childlike approach to just doing this experiment, seeing what happens, mm -hmm. you know, rather than trying to define it beforehand and make it conform to our idea of what it's supposed to be. <laughs> so that's why we think it's a create, very creative. It's a create, creativity exercise. So I'd love to spend my existence sitting quietly, seeking the truth within. What would be the best suggestion to make other people like myself who suffer from busyness? The best thing we can do for others is try to be the example. 
the Dalai Lama, people say in the presence of the Dalai Lama, you just sort of feel this thing radiating from him and it makes you calm, you know. And there's an old story about a dog barking at a monk. And uh, it's like the dog would just start barking at this monk. And the exchange was went something like, you know, why is he barking at me? And and uh, the teacher says, he's not barking, you are. <laughs> mm-hmm. So you would think around the Dalai Lama, the dogs would be very quiet. <laughs> Even with animals, I get what I give. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but it's not magical. Uh, if you become calmer, less confused more happy, com- comfortable in your own skin, uh, you will exhibit, exude a kind of charisma that other people pick up on. And it can be used for nefarious purposes, but y- you know you don't have to use it at all. Uh, but it's a natural thing. Uh, since I used to point, he'd take his fist and point to his stomach and mine, he'd say, you, you and me communication. You know, you have a kind of rapport that, that establishes and you learn to relate to people if you're patient with yourself on the cushion which is very difficult but if you become patient with your, with your excuse me your own monkey mind your own impatience on the cushion it's a lot easier to be patient with other people mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and they feel it and and just the fact that you're patient and you're interested in them uh, that's what most people need yeah does that does that answer that for you, Craig? Certainly does. Yeah, I, I need to remind I need to remind myself that it's a practice. One meditation doesn't do me for the whole week. No, most people. There's kind of a, there's no cookie cutter, but there's an average. I would say that people sit once or twice a day. I don't think it matters how long. I think if you can only sit five minutes, that's that's fine. Uh, but you'll find yourself wanting to sit longer, and so it may become 15 or 20 minutes, and so forth. You want to—you don't want to push it. Uh, it doesn't work to push it. Um, but as you find your desire to meditate longer, growing, just let yourself do it. Allow yourself to do it. You have to take care of business. You got to get up and go to work or whatever. And uh, the best times of day vary all over the place, but a lot of people sit. As soon as they get up, I even sit on the side of my bed sometimes in the morning. Just sit there for five or ten minutes, or I have to go to the bathroom, come back to bed, then sit there for a while before I try to go back to sleep. Uh, if I can't sleep, I'll just sit up and sit. And uh, pretty soon you're yawning and you fall asleep again. It's good for insomnia. Then the same thing in the evening. Uh, most people find it uh, helps clear out the day's baggage you know if you sit for a while before you go to sleep but again it can be very informal uh it's not macho zen you don't have to have to sit for an hour or, you know it's not a must do it's a we get to do this uh, we kind of sneak it in or squeeze it in where we can and then most people will when we're open in person will come to the zendo maybe once a week maybe once every other week and then every year, maybe go to a retreat or two. And that seems to be like an average. And uh, there are some studies that show, there's a book called Altered Traits, T-R-A-I-T-S, 
in which this very well-known researcher, Goldman is his name, he's written several books on meditation, finds that with these senior people like Tibetan monks who've been sitting for, you know, what do we say it takes, uh, is it 10,000 hours, like five years to master something, you know, a technique or skill or something. He said the, the, the monks who start logging over those number of hours, where most of us in our meditation begin to experience altered states where we feel better, we're clearer, we're happier, <coughs> but it doesn't last long. It's called a state. He said those, those start becoming altered traits where they're now permanent. Mm. So that's, that's what they're trying to prove scientifically. I don't know if they can capture that footprint or not, but that's, that's the theory. Since I know that we're going to have to close out here in a moment, I had a couple of, I wanted your comments on a couple of things related to meditation. I remember when I first started meditating and still even now at times, I have difficulty meditating at night when if I didn't, at first, if I didn't meditate when I first got up, before I look at email, before I got my mind going, I just could not do it. So I had to do it first thing. Um, But some people do it over lunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It took me a long time before I could do that, or or sit in the evening. Even for the first year or so, I could not sit at night at all. I just my mind just went crazy. I just sat there and just jittered. You know, could not do it. Bucky Fuller said something. He's a mentor of mine. He's the guy who invented the geodesic domes, and I I was fortunate enough to meet him a couple of times. And he said we run around all day asking ourselves all these questions. (laughs) <laughs> and then we, we say we lie down to try to go to sleep at night and all the answers come rushing in on us so we can't even remember the questions <laughs> right 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 so, so that's a that's a common uh known issue in brain science mm-hmm. and uh that's where i recommend that you know if you can get yourself to do this it's kind of like oh here i go again so you have to try it once and then the next time it happens, it's a little easier to try it again. If you just sort of roll over to the side of your bed, put your feet on the floor, wrap the blanket around you. Mm-hmm. And so you might have to put a pillow under your butt because the mattress will sag and you want your hips above your knees. Mm-hmm. You don't want your knees above your hips pushing back. But if you can get that to work just briefly and just sit there and, and breathe into it, um, that's what I'm saying. You can make meditation just that informal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, it doesn't have to be something special where you need special equipment or anything. And then it'll grow. It'll grow. Yeah. It's a natural, it's a natural thing. I think uh, people used to do this naturally before they knew what to call it. I remember when I, I went motorcycle riding a couple of months after I started meditating and I realized I was much more aware of all my surroundings. It was amazing. And it was just automatic. I was like, wow, yep. what is different? I yep. said, wait a minute, I've been meditating. That's what's different. Yeah. Some people are in the car. Some people are on the road. Yeah. If you do meditation, you can do, you can be both. Yeah. Oh, Amy, you gone? Yeah. We need to close anyway. Is there anyone with any, uh, any other comments, guys, before we close out? No, Everything thank good? you. No, that was, that was great. Thank you very much, Sensei. Thank, thank you. So appreciate much. that. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, Sensei, how do you grade uh, Craig's questions? We want to know what you really think. <laughs> well, I, I think they're 
I think they're great questions, and everybody says that now. That's the that's the knee jerk reaction. That's a great question, and I'll try to answer that question. Uh, but, but, uh, so you're saying they were mediocre questions? You've had no, no, they were okay. I was kind of great questions, but you hear that coming, right? Yeah, they they come from our culture and sort of conventional understanding that we're we, we learn we're trained in. And uh, once you start training in Zen, and again, we don't think you have to study Zen before you tr do meditation. But once you start doing meditation, just as if you start playing the piano, you might get to the point where you want to learn to read music. You might get to the point where you want to learn to practice the scales and different fingering or something, you know, more and more deeper technical. Similarly, uh, in Zen, you, you start recognizing right away where a question is dualistic in nature. And what's, what's behind the question, the question wouldn't even be asked if this sort of Buddhist teaching were, were already understood. Mm -hmm. And so it makes it easy for me to answer these questions. I have to think about it and, you know, try to give you a sensible answer. Mm -hmm. But most of these these kinds of questions are already answered in Buddha Dharma to, to, in one way or another and to, by different people in different ways. And so after a while, you kind of get the general principle. And by the way, that's another Bucky Fuller. He said intelligence is our ability to extract the general principle from the many particular cases, case experiences. Mm -hmm. ah. So that's essentially, isn't that great? Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Isn't that a great definition? Yes. Yeah. So if you think of Piaget, Piaget's learning principle for children, where you have to show them fast and slow in many, many different ways before they get the idea of fast and slow. At first, they don't know if it's the car you're moving, the toy car, you know, or the horse is running. They don't know what you're talking about. But once you show them enough different examples of fast and slow, they, ah, I get it. Right. So we've extracted the principle of fast and slow from the particular case experiences. Well, that's a very good principle in Zen as well. Well, thank you, Sensei. We appreciate you being here, sir. I'm glad to be here. I really and, like to uh, We'll put your links in the notes, too, for uh, your online meditation teaching and for your book, too, for if anybody wants to pre-purchase. Uh, pre I'm waiting on my copy. It'll be February, right? It'll be mid-February, and it's yeah. going to be featured... Uh, shortly after that, I think in March, on the Tuesday night reading group. Oh, good. Good. Okay. Well, Y'all have a great week. Hello, this is Buddy C. I wanted to make you aware of several recovery-related resources that I've posted in the episode description. These resources include a list of recovery podcasts, a free sober meditation app, daily recovery email, shared Google recovery calendars. Hope you put some of these resources to use and have a great week. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Our Understanding Recovery Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with your friends in recovery.